you come to me and you're like, you say, hey, Preston, how do you feel about X? And I was like, I'm pretty passionate about it. Here's what I believe about X. And you're like, this research just came out and said that X is actually wrong. We should move to Y. It, those people on these teams will pivot from X to Y faster than anyone else. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy folks, it is RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits. Thank you for joining us on another episode and we are talking to Dr. Preston B. Klein, who is a co-founder and principal at the Mission Critical Team Institute. Now, the MCTI is a truly fascinating organization. They work with organizations that operate within what they term is high immersion events. So these are events that are five minutes or less where life and death is on the line and the effectiveness of tactical knowledge transfer within a team is paramount because if they don't get it right, people can die, right? So how do we bring the lessons and the learnings into the relevance of what we do in an organization? How effective are we at leveraging the knowledge that exists within key members in our team and ensuring that we're transferring that knowledge in a way that is intentional and that enables us, irrespective of who's on board that day, the coming and going of staff to execute in the market at the same quality day in, day out. That's what we wanted to unpack today. And it's a really, really interesting conversation with Dr. Preston Klein, who is really working with teams that are at the edge of their seats when it comes to decisions and the consequences of those decisions if they get it wrong. If one team member is ill-equipped, ill-prepared, or does not have the knowledge and is not operating from a place of training, people can possibly lose their lives. Now, Preston was truly a joy to talk to. He's a big personality. He is highly educated in Harvard, in the University of Pennsylvania. He's also led massive um, expeditions overland in the water. He's got lots of range like many of our guests. And he, again, it was it's truly a joy to have him on the show. Lots to learn here, folks. So before you, we leave you in the capable hands of Preston, I want to let all you know in the Ultra Habits community, if you don't already, that I've gotten back into ultra running with a plan of running a hundred miler in July and would love to do the training journey with all of you. So if any of you are on Strava, please follow me at RJ Desange. That is my full last name. That is D-O-S-A-N-J-H. Would love to share the journey with you. If any of you are looking to get fit in the new year or take it to the next level, let's do it together. Anyways, folks, have a great week. Enjoy the conversation with Preston. Peace out. I'm out of here. Preston, thanks for joining us on the Ultra Habits show. I've been trying to get you on for a while. Really love your work. It's, it's super interesting. We're talking about mission 
critical teams. And before we dive into that, give us a rundown on your background, man, and how you actually got into this space. Sure. So I am 54 this year. And so you got to go way back before the internet, which is shocking to people and cell phones before all that. Um, in the 1980s, I was leading um, 60 day wilderness trips for kids out of prison up and down the East Coast of the United States of America. And so I was doing about 300 days a year in the back country coming in, you know, go out for two months, come in for two weeks, interview some kids, go back out for two months. And a lot of things I became a wilderness EMT, which is uh, an American like you're, you have paramedics there. So it's like just one rank below a paramedic, but it's meant to for search and rescue. And then later I became um, dive rescue, open ocean rescue and did both terrestrial and marine environments. And in those experiences, you know, you end up at the edge of edge of things a lot of time. And so whether it be on the expedition where you're like trying to keep somebody alive because they make some poor decisions or just had bad luck or whether it's after the expedition, someone goes home and dies in their regular life. You early in my life, I um, and even before that. I was constantly face-to-face -face with mortality, whether it was working with those kids or kids at the Ronald McDonald House camp. I don't know if they have that in Australia, but kids who have terminal illnesses or Special Olympics, right? Kids that are that are dying of, of just disability that they were born with. Um, you get this sort of very deep questions about how, why did some people make it and some people don't? But, but as an educator, because that's what I am, the bigger question for me was, how do we as a society teach people how to navigate uncertainty like like how do we help people in the in an age of increasing complexity how do we actually teach people to navigate the uncertainty that exists in their life in authentic and um accurate ways and and the way that i went about doing this and i'm fast forwarding through a bunch of years is in 2007 after i had done my undergraduate at a school called Rutgers, and then i done my master's at a little known school in new england called harvard and then I, I then did my doctorate at another little known school, uh, a regional college in Pennsylvania, the uh, University of Pennsylvania. And, um, and my doctorate, my research has always been on a combination of education, risk, and uncertainty. And it's this idea of how do we learn to do this? And after, after spending a lot of time where I was collecting more questions than answers and getting frustrated that I wasn't finding what I needed to know in the books, right? In the articles, like, yeah, I check, I get where you're coming from. I understand what you're doing. But when I actually go to apply this, right, there's a bunch of moving parts here that aren't addressed. So I thought, okay, let's flip the entire model. Let me go and shadow a bunch of what we call mission critical teams. And we can explain what that means. But basically, it's teams of four to 12 people operating in decision-making environments of about 300 seconds or less, five minutes or less, where the consequence of failure is catastrophic. So if you don't get this right, man, bad things will happen, including injury and death. And what I decided to do is I would just go there, I would observe how these teams develop their people to navigate uncertainty, because that's literally their job. Um, and then from there, I would write a dissertation to be amazing. And unfortunately, what I found was they're as much in the dark about this as I am. And that led me, and I'll close here by saying that when I say in the dark, this is what I mean. All of us have had the experience, right, where when you're good at something, when you're accomplished at something, you kind of know what right looks like and what it feels like. And you can look across at somebody else who's doing a similar thing and go, no, that's wrong. But if I say what's wrong specifically, 
It's like, uh, you struggle to find the words, right? It's called the tacit knowledge transfer problem. I know how to ride a bike, but I can't explain it to you. And there's a bunch of science about why that is, but here's where it comes down. And this is sort of the substance of what I do. If you are a resident surgeon, right? And let's say RJ, like tragically, you're in a car accident a week from now, and you end up in front of a trauma bay. You have to understand that that chain of response from your paramedic to your nurses, to your surgeons, some of those people might be having their first day. Their first day might be you showing up because everyone has a first day. And your no kidding outcome, like your like whether you live or die, yeah. is a number of factors. And one of the factors, not all of them, but one of the factors is how well the senior experience member of that team mm. able to turn to that junior member that first day and give them that that one comment, thought, expression, guidance, coaching that will allow them to get momentum. And so we spend all our time working with instructor cadres of elite teams, looking at this question of uh, tacit knowledge transfer. Like, how do you, and I know nothing about your world, right? You typically, I'm walking into worlds I, I have no business in. And I, I'm just saying, walk me through it. Explain to me, in words I will understand, what does right look like? And that's usually where people lock up. So I'll, I'll pause there, but that's where I came from, and that's what we do. Yeah, super interesting and a million questions. But I think what I'd like to start at is you talked about the people that are competent and they have their craft down. But if you ask them, you know, the detail around it, it's more intuitive versus a process or SOPs. Right. Now, people that operate within mission critical environment as you define it, and I'll get you to define that next. Is that innate or do they, do you, do you typically see that they train themselves up to that level? I guess what I'm saying is like, can a person that thinks they're bad with blood become a paramedic through training? Or is there a certain level of innateness with yeah. confidence that's gained? Like what's your view on that, man? And then also, can you just define what you, what you would call a mission critical team just for the audience? Sure. Uh, Mission Critical Team, um, uh, with a little more expanded than I said before, but is a, a team of four to 12 people that are indigenously trained and educated to um, execute against rapidly emergent, complex adaptive problem sets in 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is catastrophic. It's a very good definition, Preston. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I know. So let's, let's tease that apart because there's a lot of big words in there. There are a couple of things I want to highlight. One, when I say indigenously trained, especially in Australian context, you need to understand what I mean by that is using the anthropological term of indigenous, meaning to be of one with, with whatever institution that you were, not that you are of native people, that you are indigenous to a place of a, a way of working. So for example, you don't go to college to become a firefighter. You go to the fire department and they train you. You don't go to uh, college to be a Navy SEAL. You go to the Navy SEALs, they train you, right? And so, you know, in any one of those teams, the, the, what I mean is, is that indigenously, indigenously trained means that the senior member of that tribe or team, I'm using, again, tribe and anthropological term, the senior member is teaching the junior member. And there's a, several things that are happening. And several things to your question is, 
train and educate. So let's break these terms down. When I say training, training is for certainty. So I can train you as a uh, ultra marathon on the mechanics of running because there's certainty on that. Your knee only bends one way and there's an appropriate way for it to bend. That I can train you on because that will always be true. Your knee should always bend this way all the time. No question, no, it doesn't depend, right? However, if you come into a fork in a path, literally, then it depends. And if it depends, I need to educate you. I need to give you principles, algorithms, heuristics, schema, these different terms, in order for you to rapidly evaluate your options and move forward. So when you, to your question, there's it's complicated, and I'll start with the, the sort of cruel answer first, and I'll self-indict. Your audience <laughs> may or may not be able to see me, but will they be able to see me? Yeah, they will, yeah. Okay, yeah. so as you can see, I am not a dainty ballet star. Now, I might say to you, you know, RJ, I had a dream last night that I think my future is in ballet. I think this is where I'm going to go. At 50 years old, a little overweight, balding, chubby dude, this is it. I think if I rock this, I've got it. Would I need somebody to sit me down and be like, not going to happen for you at all? Like, not even close. No matter what you do, your physiology will not get you to a level one performance in ballet, not going to happen. We don't like to say that as educators, we'd like to say everybody can follow their dreams, but the reality is Preston's not gonna be a ballet star or an opera singer, right? Like there's a bunch of things Preston physiologically would just never be able to do. So my experience with stuff like blood and guts is there's a term and we're gonna use some neurological terms, but you're probably familiar with fight, flight, freeze. So the technical term for that is an acute stress response, um, ASR, acute stress response. And what that is, is your limbic system. So it's it's sort of at the sort of this almond-shaped sort of system based with your amygdala part of it is, and at the base of your skull, sort of midbrain. What that part of your brain is designed to do is to keep you alive, period. It's to keep you alive and sustain the species. That's what its job is. Your prefrontal cortex, the part up here above your eyebrows, that's about thinking deep thoughts and coming up with poetry, right? Like whatever. And so we know that through boot camp, for example, like military boot camp, we can rewire your limbic system. So you may look at something and go, whoa, and you might run away or freeze, or you may just start freaking out. What boot camp does is like, no, you're going to stop doing all of that. You're going to do the following several steps. The reason they're doing that is twofold. One, they're assessing whether or not they can rewire your amygdala. So to answer your question, there are some folks that for whatever reason, their wiring is they're never going to get to a place where they're, they're calm enough to be successful in that environment. I don't mean not calm. I mean calm enough. And here's why. I mentioned those two systems. And if you know Kahneman's work, right, system one, system two, I should make the caveat. I'm, I'm part of the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative. And your brain's never just doing one thing. It's, your brain's never always just in system one or system two. It's always doing all the things. But it's, a, but it's a really convenient way to talk about these things. And so we can rewire your um, system one, I think. I should know these off the top of my head. But the FAST system, your amygdala, your limbic system. And the re one of the reasons we're doing that is to buy you more cognitive working space. We're buying you more runway, right, in a temporal environment, your time, 
So looking ahead, so you can look farther ahead, right? Situational awareness, if you know that term, level three situational awareness. And so the more I am, the more I am uh, aware of or fighting my limbic system because of fear, anxiety, social pressures, et cetera, the less, the more sort of bandwidth it's using up and the less space I have up here. So basically, the more you can automate, the more likely you can leverage your prefrontal cortex to anticipate future events. So the answer to your question is, not everybody is going to be a ballet star, right? But we can get people closer than most people think. How can we, what are, what are ways that individuals can, how can individuals rewire their own limbic system? Is that possible? Like, are there, is that just through training? Is oh, that through like? People do it all the time. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is an example of retraining your amygdala, right? It's taking something that, you know, you've lived a lifestyle where you have an addiction and you're like, nope, I'm actually not going to just immediately respond to that need or desire. I'm going to hold off. Right. And so I'm going to build in a habit that allows me to live a few more years. But it's not these are not easy things. Right. Like these are we're talking about, you know, here's here's the problem. The problem that we're, we're doing some research on this right now. If you, you know, I'm, I'm an average person, you take an average person like me, you put them in front of a food buffet, and there's a part of my brain that will go, I'm gonna need to eat all that. Because I may <laughs> never, never see food again. <laughs> right now, there's a part of my brain screaming that like, you will need we'll, we'll to set up camp here because all this will need to get eaten. If you give me a beer, and there's a part of my brain that was like, that one was good. But the next one is going to be amazing. And I got to be like, no, stupid part of my brain. That's not true. And then the other problem, though, is that we now are in a world where information, email, text, social media, information is now like food and alcohol. And if we don't have a discipline in the same way we have around food or alcohol, we will really drown under information in the same way we will be destroyed by food and alcohol if, if we're not good enough, if we're not disciplined about it. And so we actually have to engage in discipline personally in a way we've never done before as a species. And this is like mm -hmm. fracturing parts of the world right now. Mm, and it's probably more of an epidemic in first world countries. If oh, you yeah. Think about it, right. Like where we're over communicated to abundance is abundant. Yeah. Uh, decision making is easy. We can Amazon shit to our house. Yeah. Like it's it, it requires stability of self in a way that you're quite right. We probably have never experienced before. And the, and the problem is our day is that I, I know statistically you received more emails this year than you did 10 years ago. That's a, that's a statistical fact, just as true. Well, that trend's gonna continue. So just as a big, a big, just a heads up, at no point will the world in charge of emails going, you know what, everybody, let's have a meeting. We're sending RJ too many emails. Let's tile that down. That conversation will never happen. And so you're gonna be receiving more information and data. And the only lever that's left is you. There isn't an external lever. Mm, I, I, there was a period of time where I tried to do a lot of self-work in the form of meditation, and I still do, to, to manage my state. 
And then what I realized was that a better way or also a productive way of trying to manage my state was actually managing the inputs that were coming towards me. So by shutting things off, like I, I block my emails after a certain time and like actually, actually putting barriers up to the, the environment, because as much as I tried to do the meditation thing, the mindfulness thing, I was still getting pulled pillar to post. Yeah. And what I found is when I actually control the environment to a certain extent by what comes into my range, it really helped. What I'd like to do shift to your actual framework. Yep. in the process. So what is the actual steps and process that you guys undertake with the work that you guys do? There's a couple of, of different ones, but you remember that, you know, one of the things that people will often, they'll see our work and they'll see a certain amount of sexiness because of the cool teams we work with. And they'll say, I want to do that. And I was like, well, okay, but like, let me walk you through how we do business and you'll see that it's a little more complicated than that. And so um, we published a paper and you can find this online. If you go to our website, this paper is available to anyone and it's called the DR5 model. And what we did was, and I'll give you some background on how we came about it. I was working with a particular team. I was working in their training house. Uh, a bunch of their uh, candidates, their students came through the, this particular um, schoolhouse and uh, they were doing an activity and the, the lead instructor turns to one of the students after being asked to give feedback and he turns, he points at the students and he says, hey, and fill in a swear word, curse word. He says, hey, curse word, um, you suck, suck less. And for me, it was like a really dis dispiriting moment because I was, I, this was one of the elite teams in the world. And I was, as an educator, I'm like, none of that was helpful. So <laughs> the, team, the team challenged me and they said, all right, we'll do better. What should we be saying in those moments, right? So I want you to imagine, let's pick a um, Australian rules football, right? Because I will never know the rules of this game. I feel like I can speak about it with some authenticity. Um, but let's just speak, let's pick anything, a cricket, any, any game. Imagine that there's one play, right? And the play might be lasting 30 seconds, 60 seconds, maybe less, right? But reduce it down to that moment, that evolution, not the whole game, to one play. Let me walk you through what the brain of the player is doing. So the player is, let's say they're on the receiving end of whatever the game is. The first thing that's happening in microseconds is a process of detection which comes from a threat detection process that's always active in your brain. So it's the first thing you do when you walk into any room, your brain is scanning for threats. The way it's doing that is smell, taste, hearing, sight. You know, if you see a bright light, if you smell smoke, if you hear screaming or you hear a sound that doesn't, you orient towards it, right? <laughs> that's detection. What you normally, normal humans do is they move from detection to reaction, which is, Oh, a startle response. Like I shock you, you detect the shock, you react by like freaking out. What what the folks that I work with, because they've been through boot camp experiences, we've been able to rewire the acute stress response, that detection to reaction. So now it's detection recognition reaction. So I'll give you an example. If a police officer is doing a simulation where they're coming into a room and they've been told there's an armed suspect, right? Well, they can't just walk in and shoot people. That's bad for society. So they have to be able to detect 
what is a threat. And by doing that, they have to recognize first before they react. So for example, what they will do is they will show cardboard cutouts of people with a gun pointed at you and cardboard cutouts with someone holding a cell phone. You have to be able to recognize, am I looking at a cell phone or a gun before you react? And you're judged whether or not you're going to do that well. So this is all happening in milliseconds. You're going to detect, you're going to recognize, and then you're going to react. React is all autonomic, meaning that if your brain says, shoot, then all of the different movements from drawing the weapon to bringing it up to your chest, to extending it, to pulling the trigger, to aiming, all these things, they're all happening autonomically. They're preloaded as, as um, habits. But then as soon as the reaction is done, you have to actually move from reaction to response, right? You are part of a larger context here. There might be other people in the building. There might be the building might be on fire. There might be friends that are injured. You can't just be reacting to whatever the threat is. You have to be responding to the larger situation that's going on. Once that's done, you need to do what's called reset. So let's say you made a mistake. And you're, you're a, a solid person and you're like, man, I can't believe I've screwed that up. You have to be able to have the, what we saw, the cortical discipline to be able to acknowledge the mistake and then reset for the next evolution so you can maximize sort of your, your headspace. And so that DR5, detection, recognition, reaction, response, and reset is our process that we work with teams primarily. That is an interesting example, example, and I guess super topical, right? Because we've seen a lot of issues in the U.S., right, with police shooting first, you know, ready shoot, ready fire aim kind of yep. uh, issues, and without going into the politics of it, I would recognize that, and I think we could all recognize that these police officers at mass are not necessarily trained to the extent. To what you're talking about however the decisions they're making are massive and yep. it's not that they're bad people it's that these systems and processes haven't yet been created right and and it just looking at the landscape there and in your experience in let's say policing have and or have they had this level of exposure at mass to this type of training like how do they like what what kind of <laughs> Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick break to thank you for your continued support of the Ultra Habits Show. It's through your support that we've been able to scale this thing so quickly and so strong over the past year. And we're truly grateful for your continued support. If you haven't already, please go to www.ultrahabits.co and subscribe. You'll get cool information, insights, and be up to date with everything we're doing and also If you haven't, please rate this podcast. The link is in the show notes. When you do this, you help us scale our message of ultra performance, ultimately helping us create more impact with our tribe. Anyways, we're going to leave you back in the hands of our wonderful guest. Yeah, not at mass. Um, You have to understand, though, that that there's a couple of different things and and we're, we're we're wading into very very complicated waters right now um let's boil it down to the individual the individual police officer the individual police officer may actually pull their gun twice in their career three times in their career we're not talking about a lot here 
And even though they have to qualify on the range, I think every month or uh, uh, quite often, I don't know what the exact numbers are. The difference between a training exercise and having your life in threat, because they're going to only do that. The only reason they should be doing it is that somebody's life in threat or their life's in threat. That's what the reason they should be doing it. Otherwise, they should try to subdue other ways. Mm -hmm. In those moments where you're like, will I live? You know what I mean? We're not talking about like a reflective moment. This, mm -hmm. is, this is microseconds. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, um, people will want to sit back in rooms like we're in ones we're in now and go, mm -hmm. man, what I would have done. But here's mm -hmm. the problem. Mm -hmm. There's a, in our world, when I talk about that 300 seconds or less, that period, we call them immersion events. And they're technically a liminal space, meaning betwixt and between two realities. <laughs> Here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> the room you're in right now is normal space. Now, let's say the room catches fire, like the room's on fire, and you have to escape that room. You're not in normal space anymore. That, that room will cease to exist the way it is in a little bit of time, or will always be changed even if they put the fire out. You're betwixt what the room was and what the room will be, but things are changing. And the choices you have to make is, will you live or will you die? And in that liminal space, your brain actually works differently. This is a highly debatable thing. This is me positing this. Your brain actually processes time and like flow. You've heard of Chicha yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Your brain processes space and time differently. You experience, I should say you experience it differently. Mm -hmm. And so- me sitting here being like, man, RJ should have handled getting out of that burning building better. It's like, what? <laughs> like, no, you're not actually, you're not, you're not competent enough to know the variables in play for RJ in that moment to be able to judge whether or not RJ made a good decision. When you talk to people that are highly evolved in their, what you qualify as immersion uh, space, is, does your research suggest that they react in that moment quite differently to the novice? And what and how is that reaction different? Like, does time slow down? Do they seem to, like, has there been any evidence that, you know, we talk about flow, like in these immersion events, have, has there been any, any, um, any, any kind of feedback to you that time slows down that enables these people to be super capable or is it just their training kicks in how would you say a super competent person reacts to this immersion space versus a novice so you have um you know you have some famous folks in australia victoria victoria brazil um and other major surger surgeons like famous trauma surgeons um other other names who I'm forgetting, and I'm going to feel terrible about later, um, who are are just extraordinary um, in in Australia. And when you interview them, or I interview people here in the United States, what I find is that it's not just about training and education; it's also about frameworks. So I'll give you an example. So there's a, a highly, there's a really famous uh, trauma surgeon here in the United States named David Gens. And David Gens and I, I was able to just do a brief interview with him. And one of my questions was, um, how do you manage the stress in a, in a, he works at shock trauma, which is, if you don't know, is, is the first trauma hospital in the United States and one of the leading in the world. And he's one of their senior fellows, senior, senior people. 
He's been doing it for a long time, and he's very good at it and highly respected. But it's trauma, meaning that you've got pregnant mothers that have been in car accidents. You have kids that can't breathe. Like, it's all the stuff that would give you nightmares, right? And that's his every day. Like, our worst day is his every day. <laughs> and so I'm like, all right, sir, how do you manage that stress? And he looks at me, he goes, what stress? Mm -hmm. And I was like, uh, are you messing with me right now? Like, what do you mean? And he goes, Preston, this is what I try to tell my, my resident surgeons. If they're coming here, that means if they're coming to a trauma bay, that means that something that's happened to them, which I had no influence on, is killing them. And they're coming to me because I might prevent them from dying. So I'm not, I'm not God, right? I, like, I didn't do what it was that harmed them but I have a chance of making it better. And so it's not stressful. It's a gift to be able to do this work. Wow. It's, but it's, not, it's not my authority. I don't get a vote on like this. I just got it. I'm going to try to influence the best of my ability. And I think that kind of a really healthy mindset, which isn't dispassionate, but it's a recognition of what we can control and influence. Right. And it's an understanding that we do not have to trade our soul or our marriage or our livers or our lives to be in service to others. Like we can be in service to others and still keep what is us. That's super interesting. So it's about how we view things and how we frame things to ourselves, right? A lot of the times. It's true. I do want to go back to what you said before, though, is that when you're new, I'm talking about first two or three years, right? Mm -hmm. It's nice for me to say that, but you're just trying to learn your job, right? Like, you're just trying to be like, what are my fingers supposed to be doing right now? Like, where are my hands supposed to be? Um, and <laughs> it takes a little time, right, for you to get to a place where you can have that kind of a, a larger existential view. You've got to have some laps before you're able to be sit back and go, oh, yeah, man, I, I, I've talked to God about this and we've come to an arrangement. Like, it's going to take a hot minute. And so... We just have to remember that we forget sometimes that these super smart nurses and docs, they're still young. Like we were all young. They're still young. And we got to remember that they're making life and death decisions, especially during the age of COVID, that no normal human should have to make every day. And they're making them. And people are like, well, you're a doctor or a nurse. You should figure it out. It's just not the case. So we just have to remember like, we, we should look after them, right? Like every once in a while, just remind ourselves, hey, some of these guys are quite young and like, we need to grab them, make sure they're okay. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I think in, in, like we, we know in the addiction community, you know, there's a high addiction rate within the medical community, ironically, right? Like it's a very stressful job. I've got friends that are in the ultra endurance community and their doctors and then they're stressed out all the time. Like they don't have their shit together. Like you might be stressed out if you knew they were operating on you, do you know what I mean? Because they, yeah. the hours are weird. It's shift work effectively, right? Yeah. Like it's inconsistent. A lot of them lack sleep. There's a lack of gratitude. And you're quite right with COVID, like they've been putting themselves at risk and not necessarily being shown uh, the empathy, at, you know, that they probably shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, there's a humanity there that we sometimes just all take for granted. Like, well, you signed up for this, we'll suck it up. Well, yeah, but there's a there's that's true for veterans too. And we have Remembrance Day and we have Veterans Day, we have all these things because we recognize the sacrifice of being away from your family and putting yourself in harm's way on behalf of your country. 
is worthy of recognition. Well, that's what doctors and nurses are doing right now. I'm not, it's not me diminishing, right? Anybody's work, veterans or anything else. It's just recognizing that as society, we actually need all these people doing well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to bring this conversation into the business context now, Preston. Yeah. So what's your experience? And you and I had that call, I think I was walking my dog and I had a baby on my back and I was like, you know, I was asking you, okay, well, that's all well and good, Preston, in environments that are chaotic and hectic, and there's like an existential fucking crisis. Right? Right. Like, how do you then apply this to the business world? And so how have you brought, have you been able to bring this over into commerce? So a couple of caveats that you should know. I spent um, 10 years helping during the leadership program at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. So it's a business school. And, I, and as a result of that, ended up working um, side by side with people who represented the Fortune 500 of international companies, all the ones that you might have heard of, right? And I say that because I'm around academics that are studying corporations, and I'm around folks that are working and running corporations. Um, and so I have some knowledge, and I run my own corporation, I run two businesses. So I have some knowledge on this, but I saying all of this to say that, that, like I said in the very beginning, part of what we do is sexy, but it's not always applicable to everybody else. So for example, my DR5 model is just not useful to Amazon, right? That's not, it's not used to, useful to like Google. It's, that's not the environment they're working on. And there are, however, other parts of the work that we do that great teams do that corporations are now taking a strong look at. So for example, there's a friend of mine named Sue Phillips who runs the Sacred Design Lab. And one of the things that she will say um, in her work is that human beings fundamentally require um, food, oxygen, water, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but they also require some level connection and belonging. And if you believe that you can run a corporation in a sterile environment without connection and belonging, you're, you should you should hire more HR people because you're not going to keep people. And the people you do keep are going to be the wrong people, mm-hmm. <clears throat> right? So if you're not focusing on, edge, on, on, on connection and belonging, you, you've got a problem. That's Preston's view on this. Second thing I would say, the second big habit we've seen great companies do or we've seen bad companies do poorly, this is true for all teams actually, is what are called after action reviews. And so... When you think about this question of, as you as a listener, how do you learn? You know, it's a real question. Like, you should take a minute and ask yourself, how do I learn, right? And one of the ways you learn, besides just the reception of information, right, the remembering of information, is that you have to make meaning of that information. So if you have an experience, right, you have to actually be like, what was that all about? And what we found is that the reason, there's a number of reasons that humans gather together in little little clicks, is because humans learn in a social environment. It's not by accident we put all the kids in a classroom. We learn through dialogue and we learn through different perspective taking and, and socially making meaning of a lived experience. <clears throat> so if you're in a corporate environment and you go through a project or a quarter or a, 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 you know, a deal, it is worth your time to bring everybody together and not forever, like 45 minutes, just do a wrap around what did we learn from this? And the second big question we're working on now is not only what did we learn from this, 
But what story will we be telling ourselves about ourselves and about our team tomorrow? So am I walking out of here with a story in my head like I failed or my team sucks? Is that the story that's happening in my head that I'll stay at the pub tonight? And if it is, you're failing because that's not useful to your community, your culture, connection, belonging, or to your bottom line. And I'm not saying you should manipulate that story, but you should make sure you understand why they're saying that. Mm. It's interesting, right? Like our, our narrative and uh, our narrative creates our perspective on our environment, which creates our reality, right? Yeah, 100%. So let's talk about, we'll go back to the mission critical teams. Yeah. What are some of the habits at group and team level that we can talk about in general that are done? Like, are there, are there ways that teams in this mission critical environment solidify themselves? Are there, yeah, are there, there's a couple of habits. One is if you're on an elite team anywhere in the world, Australia, let's take Australia. And I go to any of your special operations teams, your tactical law enforcement teams, your professional sports at the elite level. What you're going to find are the people that are in that organization somewhere in their career, usually early on, weaponize their curiosity. <laughs> they are insatiable learners and they are they are very curious as to why things work. Right. Many of them have a different learning profile. They don't work well learning in a factory classroom setting. So that's why they left to go join whatever team they're joining. But they are very curious about finding the truth. The second thing is they're highly agile, meaning this, that RJ, you come to me and you're like, you say, hey, Preston, how do you feel about X? And I was like, I'm pretty passionate about it. Here's what I believe about X. And you're like, this research just came out and said that X is actually wrong. We should move to Y. It, those people on these teams will pivot from X to Y faster than anyone else. They'll literally read it and go, ah, I like my old way, but this is a better way. I wouldn't go that now. It's extraordinary to watch. They're very quick to move. Um, and then this, the second thing besides this sort of just, just intense um, lifelong learning um, passion um, is this commitment to get 1% better every day, right? Like that. And then lastly, as a group, as I mentioned before, to really be thoughtful about how they together are making meaning of their experiences. I think that's huge. I think that's huge. I think that's a massive competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. right? Like how does a management team come together as a group of individuals and create the narrative and perspective and vision in a consolidated way that they can then message through the organization? Yep. That's huge. And that Someone's doesn't happen no. very often, not in the commercial world, maybe in environments like with SEALs where they, the, the, the stakes are high. Yep. The existential pressure is there, which kind of, I mean, we talked about this offline, like in Alcoholics Anonymous, it is a community of people that if we talk politics, yeah. we, would we could potentially punch on. Yeah. If we talked about anything, we are so diverse. We're all crazy. Yeah, um, we all have our issues, but we're there bound by a deeper reason. Yeah, which is this existential crisis that we're all trying to navigate, and it keeps the group together. It's the most disorganized, organized global community 
but we're driven by a very deep purpose, which then kind of supersedes any of the superficial. The question is, well, then how do you apply that to a non-life-threatening environment like a business and still come together with that level of tenacity and unified purpose? And I think what you're saying there is great. Like maybe having sessions where you actually talk about, well, how are we viewing ourselves? What's the narratives we all got in our head? and trying to unify that then to kind of shift that throughout the business. Yeah. Yes. There's, there's a bunch of things in there and I'm glad that you said both existential crisis and purpose. So the typical thing that happens, right. Is that a group faces a crisis, they rally around a purpose and they move forward together. But what does that actually look like? And so some of the professional sports themes that I've seen around the world and have the, the privilege to work with, one of the things that I've been most impressed by with the really good teams is this thing that they do, not all of them, but some of them, is that let's say they win the important game, whatever the game is. They'll get everybody together. And by the way, when I mean everybody, I mean everybody in the organization. So the receptionist, the accountant, whatever, and the players and the coaches. And they'll bring everybody together and they'll say, hey, guys, I want to congratulate everybody, folks, on this win. I want to highlight a couple of moments um, that got us here. And I want to start with this particular play. This person did this. Man, that was an amazing score. But I want to let you know that that person who made that score, they were injured about a month ago. And it was the folks in PT over here that actually got them in, in play. And we actually almost didn't hire the PT people but the folks in HR who were sitting right there were able to like do their magic to get that person. Then we didn't know if we'd have the money and the people in accounting, mm -hmm. right? They, they like, do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. And they do this moment where they like highlight individuals where there's a, like a very precise acknowledgement of your role in winning that important game, even though you're the accountant. And uh, that's the kind of thing that great teams do. Mm. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Um, and uh, it makes a lot of sense. I think what we'll do is we'll start to wrap it up there, Preston. I really, really want to thank you for an amazing and super interesting conversation. Like I can actually talk to you about this for hours. It's, uh, it's kind of the intersection of high performance habits, teams. Um, and yes, it is quite sexy because we're talking about this immersion factor which is this 300 seconds of you know intense uh, situational pressure right so i really want to thank you for your time where can our audience find you and learn more about your work yeah if you go to um um mission cti charles tango indigo dot uh, com um the best way to do that is we have a thing called a team cast so much like your ultra habits podcast it's a it's a uh, a team cast is a, it's a podcast that has uh, we interview people in our world and oftentimes not always in the show notes is the actual research article that we've published on the on the subject that we're talking about. So we do uh, the kind of research is called collaborative inquiry. We go and find actual operators. We find out what their challenges are. And then we do research based on what they're asking. Um, and so it's not written for academics. It's written for, you know, knuckle draggers like me. Um, <laughs> so like. If you can eat oatmeal, you can understand it, right? And so, um, yeah. And so that's that's the that's the probably the best way to find us. 
All right, well, Preston, it is the beginning of our day here in Australia. I think it's getting towards the end of your business day. Absolutely. And uh, again, really, thank you for your time. All the best, yeah? Yeah, thanks very much, RJ.